our last episode of the Insights at Work podcast, we focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how to lay a solid foundation of it in your organization. We had so much to talk about and such a great expert as our guest that we decided to create two podcasts on this very timely and important topic. And boy, do we have some great stuff to talk about today. So, without further ado, this is part two. Let's dive in. This is the podcast that looks at what's happening in the HR world, takes your questions, and studies the research to help HR experts move forward. It's prepared by HR experts for HR experts. In our last episode, I introduced you to one of Canada's leading diversity, equity, and inclusion experts, Kathy Gallagher-Louisi. Kathy not only teaches about inclusive leadership for Toronto Centennial College, but is also a faculty member of the University of Toronto Corporate Social Responsibility and Sustainability Graduate Diploma Program. She is the co-editor of the newsletter for the Center for Global Inclusion and the principal of CGL Consulting. Kathy, we had such a great time for part one of this podcast. Are you ready for today's part two? Yes. Okay, let's get right into it then. Kathy, now that we've touched on what the executive team can be doing, Which specific activities do you find are good that HR managers could start out with when launching a diversity, equity, and inclusion program? What's the low-hanging fruit that's going to generate the most impact? There's, I'm I'm always concerned about the the term low-hanging fruit (laughs) because, um, you know, in some organizations, they do the low-hanging fruit pieces, and those tend to be the easy and fast ones. Um, and sometimes they're the ones that don't have the deep impact. So it's important that we recognize, yes, we want to get some quick wins. Yes, we want to be seen to be doing something immediately, but we also have to recognize that the the real work here is going to be long and difficult. Um, But uh, some of the things that HR folks should really be considering doing is reviewing all of your hiring and onboarding uh, initiatives through diversity, equity, and inclusion lens. So look at job postings for inclusive language and bona fide occupational requirements and unintended barriers. Here's a great story. I was working with an engineering firm a number of years ago, and um, one of the HR people pointed out that the way they write some of their job descriptions actually is discriminatory. And so they they said, they, they shared this example. There was a particular job that was posted and it required 15 to 20 years of experience in a particular segment of engineering. Well, they happened to know that women had only been working in that segment of engineering for 10 years. So by simply saying 15 to 20 years, you have now eliminated any qualified women for applying for the job. Um, So those kinds of things are what I'm talking about when you think about bona fide occupational requirements. Does a person really require 15 to 20 years experience to be good at this job, right? What other types of experience might be um, might be able to contribute to them doing a good job? So those those are some of the things you should really look at. Um, You should uh, review job descriptions for bona fide occupational requirements as well. 
um, not just the postings. Um, review any assessments that you're using in your hiring processes to ensure that there's no cultural or accessibility barriers. Um, reviewing how you hire, you know, like our applicant tracking systems that a lot of organizations use are really not accessible for people with disabilities and very difficult for people to navigate. Um, so that's a that's a barrier right there to people even being considered. Um, if we uh, look at our, our whole hiring process for accessibility, there's a number of places that we can make improvements um, and including in our documents and our communications, um, including diversity, equity and inclusion in information in our onboarding um, and updating that year over year as our diversity strategy progresses. Um, ensuring that we're posting our job postings with diverse recruitment sites and agencies and instructing any recruitment staffing or executive search firms to provide a diverse slate of candidates with every search. That makes a huge impact in looking at diverse representation in senior leadership and specialty roles. Um, partnering with organizations that are dedicated to hiring different de demographic groups such as women or racialized people or newcomers or people with disabilities or people um, who are part of the LGBTQS uh, community or indigenous populations. There's all these different sources where we can post jobs. When we get into looking at our talent management development and succession planning programs, there are many, many places where we can improve diversity, equity, and inclusion there. So looking at our succession planning and our how do we identify who's a high potential and how do we identify who gets leadership development and putting all of those through a diversity, equity, and inclusion lens looking for gaps in representation um, and uh, looking for places where bias has an impact in our talent management processes and creates unintended barriers. Um, thinking about um, providing diversity, equity, and inclusion learning to everyone who's involved in talent management and succession planning, not just the HR folks, um, but everyone who's involved in, in any kind of decisions around hiring or promotion. Um, another thing to think about is uh, establishing some goals around DEI for succession planning and looking at your representation. And I heard a really great um, story from an organization. It's the, the jewelry manufacturer, Pandora, and they have created this new approach to hiring um, and promotion. And when a lot of our organizations are hiring for fit, what Pandora is doing instead is hiring for culture ad. So if you want to think about it this way, if we look at our team and we realize that you know, from uh, communication styles or personality styles or skill set perspective, we may have gaps in our team and we may want to hire people who are going to fill those gaps. If we also look at diversity dimensions and different perspectives as well and see what's lacking in our team and what different perspectives and experiences we're bringing into our team that can help our teams be more innovative and bring in those different perspectives that we may need. Um, so hiring for culture ad instead of culture fit is a really interesting approach because when we hire for fit, a fit is biased. It usually means like me and it usually means uh, very similar to the folks who are already on the team. Um, also, how do you objectively assess fit, right? Um, so this this whole approach of hiring for culture ad is a really nice one that I think if more organizations would simply adopt that it would make a big difference as opposed to always hiring for fit. But there's a giant list of things that HR folks can do um, without even having a full diversity strategy and just starting to look at their own processes for um, unintended barriers and uh, different areas that are discouraging uh, different groups of people or creating advantages for different groups of people and mitigating those. Wow, all great tips, Kathy. There's a lot we can do. And if companies implemented just a fraction of some of your suggestions, 
they'd be well on their way to a more diverse corporate culture. Tell me, as exhaustive as that list might seem, which I'm sure it's not, what about those companies who are further along in their diversity and inclusion journey? For our listeners who are indeed doing a great job at breaking down those barriers and creating a diverse culture, what activities could they be exploring to deliver an even more meaningful experience and environment for their workforce? This is this is a great question, Jeff. Um, you know, we, we know there's a lot of organizations in Canada that have been working at diversity and inclusion and equity for 30 years. Those organizations that have had to comply with the Employment Equity Act, and there's still areas that they can improve upon. Um, there's no organization that has made it that's perfect, that has, you know, done a, a, a perfect job on everything diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it's continuing on the journey, continuing to, um, apply resources to it and as you achieve certain goals to set bolder goals to to set stretch goals to you know really push the envelope on um, achieving diversity equity and inclusion goals um, and making it a part of how you do business throughout the whole organization ensuring every employee is on board this takes a lot of effort and many 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 years in organizations especially when you consider that we have turnover um, having more sophisticated um, uh, initiatives and systems. So you will want to have, um, you know, mature diversity councils with committees in different jurisdictions or different locations or different lines of business that support the work of those councils and committees. Um, having, you know, robust employee resource group networks throughout the organization is another aspect that might be useful in, in many organizations. Um, then going beyond, uh, you know, and doing benchmarking, um, investing in other organizations that are trying to promote this work, um, doing industry-wide benchmarking, uh, doing and, and, and actually providing resources for research on, and benchmarking on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, there's a number of different ways that organizations can kind of go beyond. Uh, and there's a fantastic tool that can help them sort of understand what are these things to go beyond. It's called the Global Diversity and Inclusion Benchmarks. And there's 14 categories of what an organization could be doing in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And at every in every category, there's five levels. So level five is the best practice ca uh, area. And if you just look at some of the items in the best practice levels of each of these categories, it will give you a good sense of some of the things that organizations could be striving toward, knowing full well that it might take many years to get there along the diversity journey. Kathy, you mentioned the benchmarking tool, and let's talk about that in just a minute. But for now, one thing that you did mention that really stands out for me is the need to ensure every employee is on board. The employer needs to get the word out and the buy-in from the workforce. So how can workplaces communicate diversity, equity, and inclusion policies? And how often should those policies and activities around diversity, equity, and inclusion be communicated? Great question, Jeff. As a communicator, I'm sure you well know that we need to communicate quite extensively. Uh, you know, there's that old adage in communication, that you have to say something 13 times before the audience hears it. Um, when we think about diversity, equity and inclusion, it is an organizational change initiative and communications is an incredibly important part of organizational change. So we really want to be um, having a very 
uh, well thought out, robust communications strategy related to diversity and inclusion. It should be communicated regularly through multiple channels in the organization. So that should come from uh, corporate communications. There should be newsletters. It should be included in other news, other uh, types of communications throughout the organization, not just specifically diversity communications, but it should be woven into all the communications that the organization is doing. We should be providing speaking notes for executives to be incorporating diversity, equity, and inclusion information into um, you know, whenever they're giving a speech or having a town hall meeting or providing, uh, you know, a, a guidance to their teams. Um, there should be information that's provided throughout the organization to different levels and it should be differentiated by um, the line of business and the level of, the, of where the person is in the organization. Um, it, many organizations will use videos in, in their internet. They'll use posters in their organizations, in their in their physical buildings. Um, they'll use multiple different ways. I've seen organizations have had when employees first log on to their computer that, that things pop up to provide information. So multiple, multiple ways of communicating. And, um, and in fact, it should start to feel like you're over communicating about it because once it becomes communicated it, it, enough, it starts to become just part of the way your organization talks about your business in general. Uh, and then there doesn't need to be so much diversity specific communications, but still those specific communications are, are, are quite important throughout the whole journey. Um, but you really want to see it woven into more of the traditional communications channels of the organization in multiple ways. Kathy, I think I need to say something 300 times to our daughter before she hears it, especially if Paw Patrol is on. Kathy, you're one of eight Canadians on a global group of expert panelists for the Global Diversity and Inclusion Benchmarks. Congratulations on that. Given this is one of your strongest areas of expertise, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you how effective you believe a diversity scorecard is. Is it worthwhile? And if so, what should organizations be looking at measuring when it comes to diversity and inclusion? Thanks, Jeff. Yes, I've been involved with the Global Diversity and Inclusion Benchmark since 2015. And that is a tool that gets revised every five years. And we found that organizations that were using a scorecard universally had increased the um, importance of diversity and inclusion amongst the organization's leadership. And the information in the diversity scorecard had become part of the organization's overall reporting. So extremely important that we have a scorecard or a dashboard or some kind of robust reporting framework that will help you to provide um, metrics back to the leaders of the organization about how you're doing on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And what should we be measuring? There's so many different ways that we can measure to get a complete picture. One of the most important things that organizations can do is to conduct a full census of their employees to understand who they have in their workforce, as well as conducting surveys and focus groups and interviews and other methods of understanding how employees feel. Um, so the census is important because most organizations, unless they have to comply with the Employment Equity Act, are only collecting uh, information about um, uh, employees' gender, and often it's just binary male, female, without providing other gender identity uh, areas for, the, for them to identify, and their age. And that's what most organizations collect when people get hired. Um, and so it's really important that we understand 
you know, what is the, the ethnic demographic makeup across the organization? What's the representation of um, indigenous people? What's the representation of people with disabilities? What's the representation of, um, you know, racialized people, of uh, people who are L identifying as LGBTQ plus? Um, all these different areas on the spectrum are important in understanding where people are in the organization, as well as how they feel about working in the organization. And this is a really important piece because gathering this feedback from employees is an important piece of understanding how, what's actually happening in your organization. Um, because it takes this out of the realm of anecdotal stories and puts it into hard data. And when organizations have hard data, it's a lot harder to ignore that hard data when it's very clear that certain serious percentages of the organization are experiencing barriers, exclusion, or they don't feel valued by the organization. There's a number of different things that you can gather with this type of information. Um, and, it, you know, part of the reason why this is important is because a lot of organizational leaders have never experienced exclusion and may not be aware of, you know, their own privileges and the extent to which other people are experiencing exclusion, harassment, discrimination in the organization. The other thing that we know is that the research shows us that people who report harassment and discrimination often experience reprisals. And depending on the research report you look at, anywhere from 50 to 75 percent of people who reported harassment or discrimination in their organization experience some kind of reprisals or retaliation for reporting it, which is illegal under every human rights code in Canada. Um, and the sad thing is, is the folks who, who are reporting sexual harassment that are at the 75% level for experiencing reprisals. So people are understandably reluctant to come forward with their individual issues. So when you gather this information, um, it provides more concrete data for organizational leaders to sort of wake up and understand what's happening. Lots of other ways of measuring. Um, I mentioned surveys and focus groups and interviews. Um, you can also do uh, assessments of your leadership's competence in a number of different ways. Um, you can do assessments of managerial competence in a number of different ways. Uh, you can collect, uh, do benchmarking studies to understand where your organization is in relation to others in your sector or industry. Um, sometimes organizations will collect information from the public, uh, from uh, external stakeholders. Uh, that can be done by surveys or interviews with external stakeholders or public town hall consultation sessions. And depending on the type of organization, that input might also be very important to their diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. And one of the things I would like to suggest is that organizations keep measuring, that they don't just measure at the beginning of their journey, but they have to establish some metrics that they're going to measure year over year that will help them to track progress against their diversity, equity, and inclusion goals as they move forward. Kathy, like you mentioned, if it's not measured, it's not acted upon. Exactly. Kathy, you mentioned how important it is to have that hard data. And that reminds me of one particular stat that really stands out for me. The ADP Workplace Insights Survey that we've been talking about today, it showed that only half, that's 50% of working Canadians who belong to an ethnic minority feel their ethnicity is represented within the makeup of their company's management team. I'm interested to hear what you think about this statistic. Does it surprise you? Are we better off now than we were 10 years ago? Kathy, are we heading in the right direction? This is an important point, Jeff. The, the fact that people don't see themselves reflected in their leadership team has a serious impact on people. And we talk about representation quite a lot. 
And there's good reason for it. And it's because if you do not see yourself reflected in in particular roles, in particular images, then there's a psychological effect to that. And the assumption is, well, this is not for me. If I don't see people like me represented there, then that's not even a possibility for me. So very important that we have 50% of, of uh, Canadians who belong to an ethnic minority who don't feel like they're seeing themselves represented in their management teams. This is not very surprising given the makeup of most executive leadership teams in uh, Canadian organizations. Although we've made some vast improvements there, the research is showing, and Canadian Board Diversity Council does a lot of research on representation on corporate boards, that um, in, in the past few years, we've actually seen, uh, we've gone down in representation of uh, ethnic minorities, um, as well as um, uh, Indigenous people and people with disabilities in the uh, boards of corporations. Um, so yes, I think we may be slightly better than we were 10 years ago in some of these areas. Um, we are heading in the right direction, but it's just, we're moving at a glacial pace and it's not fast enough. And um, I understand why people become uh, extremely frustrated and disheartened at the slow pace of change. Kathy, when I listen to your insights, I keep thinking to myself that there's a recurring theme that we need to create a judgment-free space that encourages collaboration through processes and people. One way that I've heard is quite effective is through allyship. Could you explain what allyship is to the listeners and why it's so important for HR teams to focus on? Thanks for this question, Jeff. Uh, it's extremely important for anyone who uh, to identify the areas in which you are privileged and to be an ally to those who don't have those same privileges. And so when we're thinking about allyship, one, the, one of the most important things that we can do as allies is to educate ourselves about the experiences of other people and not expect marginalized people to educate us. As an individual ally, it's very important that we educate ourselves. And one of the things that's happened this year is so many racialized people have been asked to explain racism to their white colleagues and friends. And in case you're not aware, I'm white. So I'm talking about this from my own understanding of my whiteness and my place in uh, a system of white supremacy in North America. Um, it's important that we learn ourselves and there's so many resources online that we can teach ourselves about this um, without placing the emotional burden on people who have already experienced oppression to explain their oppression to us. Because often what happens there is, you know, we're curious and we want to learn more. So we ask our colleagues of color or our friends or family members of color to explain things to us. And then when they start to explain some of the situations that they've experienced and the, um, the their lived experiences, often, unfortunately, white people will then question them and invalidate their experiences and say things like, well, maybe you're being too sensitive or maybe they were having a bad day or are you sure that's racism? And, you know, when you experience racism on a regular basis, sexism or homophobia or any of these isms, you know exactly what's happening when it happens. And then when you explain it to somebody else and they invalidate you, then that just adds so much more oppression to the oppression. So we, as allies, it's really important that we educate ourselves. So it's really important that allies listen to the people that we're supposedly trying to help and not try to take over the conversation either with um, you know, our desire to be seen as a good ally or our guilt or any of these other things that kind of derail or draw attention away from the issue at hand. I hope that helps. 
That concept of listening and not bringing the conversation around to oneself, it's tough. My partner is a person of color and she'll point out instances when we're together and she senses something that I don't. And you know what? At the end of the day, there's something there that's worth sensing and I don't always see it, but it's there. Thank you. Can I can I address that? Yeah, of course. Go ahead. What you just said. So that's a really important piece that a lot of times white people will and I was in an interracial marriage for 27 years and my kids are biracial. Um, a lot of times white people will say, you know, oh, well, you're making it about race or, um, you know, that's not racism. If if racialized people, if black, indigenous and people of color um, experience something and they say it's racism, then white people should just listen. And if they don't understand how it's racism, then we should we should learn more about how that's racism. So it's it's really, really important to recognize that there are times when we're not going to see it because we have been actually programmed to not see it. Well, I'm just really glad that we can talk about this today. Thank you. So, Kathy, before we get to the list of your favorite things, I wanted to look at diversity, equity, inclusion outside of the workplace. In addition to questions on diversity, equity, and inclusion within the workplace, participants of the ADP survey were asked about recent events and what they felt generated the most dialogue within their organization. Many Canadians felt public gatherings within their city generated the most dialogue, followed by action from the Canadian government, and then sports teams taking a stand. One in four working Canadians would feel more loyal to their organization if it publicly took a stand on diversity and inclusion. Kathy, what do you think employers should be doing publicly outside of the workplace to support diversity, equity, and inclusion if they should be doing anything at all? Thank you for this question, Jeff. This is a really touchy one because um, we see the situation where organizations put out corporate statements that are not backed up by action, right? So sometimes then these external statements are more of a PR exercise rather than a reflection of the deep work that is happening inside the organization. What has happened is in many organizations, you know, they put out these statements, their CEO put out a statement, and then they started hearing from all kinds of employees within their organization well, okay, nice pithy statement, but what are we actually doing about the racism that I'm experiencing here in our own organization? But that being said, it is important for um, powerful public institutions and organizations to publicly take a stand about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And my concern is that, um, you know, some organizations are actually doing the work, but not communicating publicly about it. And it's okay for an organization to say, we are working on this. We are dedicating resources to this. We don't have it all wrapped up in a nice bow yet, but we're working on it. Um, but it also has to be backed up by doing the actual work. Kathy, I totally agree. Organizations need to walk the talk. And if they aren't doing the actual work, then it opens them up to come across as disingenuous and might create distrust with their staff. Okay, Kathy. Here's where we get to learn a little more about you. It's your list of favorite things. Are you ready? Yes. All right, let's start with the first one. Kathy, what's your favorite tool to help get work done? Um, in the DEI space, it's the Global Diversity and Inclusion Benchmarks. And where can people find that tool? 
Um, you can download it for free at the Center for Global Inclusion. Um, if you just Google uh, download GDIB, you will land on the right page. Well, I'd have to say that after everything you've said about the tool, it sounds awesome. All right, second question. Kathy, what's your favorite resource to go to for industry information? I, I actually use LinkedIn quite a lot, but if I'm looking for industry information, if I have a client in a particular industry, I will usually go to industry associations because a lot of the time the associations have done research on the industry and specifically over the last several years, we've seen a lot of these associations doing research on diversity in the industry um, and employee demographic makeup in the industry. And so I find that those industry associations can often be a very good source of information about the industry in which the organizations uh, work that we're trying to help those organizations. Makes perfect sense. Kathy, what's your favorite music album of all time? Oh, this is a really tough one because I have very eclectic musical tastes. Um, so a few years ago, I inherited a record player from my uncle along with a collection of several hundred records. And um, this has allowed my then teenage kids to discover the joy of listening to an album all the way through from start to finish. Because like in the old days, right, albums were a work of art, like a complete story where each song is like a chapter of a novel, right? So we uh, listened to the entirety of Pink Floyd's The Wall and a number of old albums by Rush this way. And it was really an eye-opening experience for the kids to sort of hear that progression of songs. And then, you know, at, you get to the end and you have to flip it over to keep going. And there, there's, a, there's a tactical experience. Um, but just experiencing entire albums that way is a new experience. And I, I think Pink Floyd's The Wall really stands up as this really cohesive story. Kathy, there was nothing like running home from the record store and carefully pulling out that vinyl record from its jacket and, of course, reading the liner notes. We pulled out the old record player here, but the only records I get to listen to are Read Along with Peter Pan and Snow White. Okay, what was your favorite toy as a kid? Okay, I have, I have two answers here. Um, okay. So... Okay, I had a ton of Barbies and there was a group of girls on my street who also had Barbies and lots of accessories and we would go to each other's houses and set up little Barbie towns using vinyl record album covers as the walls of the Barbie houses. Um, so that was fun. We all had this big cart of, of Barbie stuff that we'd cart to each other's house. Um, but I also totally love my light bright because I'm, you know, I love making those those light patterns and, and drawings. Um, and often I would not use the templates and just do my own thing. <laughs> Well, Lightbright seems so appropriate because you really have helped to shine a light on such an important HR topic today. Okay, last question, and it's usually the most insightful. Kathy, what is your favorite piece of advice that you give to someone who's just starting out in their career? I have two here as well, okay? The first one is network, network, network. I cannot tell you how important your network is going to be it, 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 in many ways, it's your most important asset throughout your career. And sometimes it's even more important than your credentials. Um, and so my kids, uh, you know, they're undergrads. They both had LinkedIn profiles since they were teenagers. And um, I've been encouraging them to connect on LinkedIn with folks that they meet. Um, and I used to do LinkedIn and networking training for all the interns that would work with us at CCDI. The network is so, so, so important. Um, the second thing I would say it, for people starting out their career is take every advantage of every opportunity that your employer gives you to get involved um, in organizational initi initiatives or to get development. Take all the courses you can while you have access to them. This is incredibly important. I remember at earlier points in my career, 
you know, people would ask me, how do you get all this training? How do you get to go to these conferences? And I would say, I just ask. And honestly, I, I expect them to say no most of the time. And if they say yes, a bonus. And that's part of what helps you progress in your career as well. Well, I'm so glad that we asked you to come on the podcast. It's certainly been a bonus for the Insights at Work crew and our listeners. And with that last question, it looks like we've run out of racetrack today. Kathy, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Really enjoyed the conversation. Um, and thank you so much for asking me to be part of this initiative. I'm, I'm very honored and, uh, and happy to be, to be here. Um, and uh, look forward to listening to other podcasts as they come up. Thank you. And this is the part of the podcast where I thank everyone for listening in. I know it's tough to find time to carve out for thought leadership, and I appreciate you, the listener, for making the time for us. Anything we can do to help ourselves get better at something is time well spent. On our next episode, we'll be talking with more HR experts about today's most important HR issues. I'm Jeff Livingston. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be kind. We'll see you soon on our next episode of ADP's Insights at Work.